The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content relating to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Wayne Nance was a mercurial, seething psycho who in due course would earn everyone's complete trust, especially when it came to women in the store, meaning comrades. They knew he was impossible, but they also knew they could count on him to do them a favor. He was such a nice guy. This is Episode 7 on our book, To Kill and Kill Again by Don Costin. Welcome back, Murder Shelf Bookies. This is part two of our series, To Kill and Kill Again by John Costin. As we discuss Wayne Nance, the Missoula Mauler. I'm Jill. And I'm Tara. And if you just started listening, we've been part of a true crime book club for years now and love discussing our true crime books. We wanted to expand our love of reading and bring it to all of you. During our first episode of the month, we reviewed and discussed a book we pulled off our murder shelf. Now, we won't want to give you a linear timeline, and as this is a book review and discussion, we like to follow in the steps of the author to give you the story from their point of view. Follow up in the third part of the series, which we call Second Cast, is where we pull a little on those threads of the book that completely fascinate us. Thank you again for tuning in and listening. And we are still eating deviled eggs and drinking sake, so bear with us as we dive in. Alrighty, so we're going to start off with another murder, and this is Verna Joy Caval, and this was going to take place in Missoula and would remain unsolved. It took place roughly two years after Siobhan McGinnis and Donna Pounce on April 18, 1976. She was found Easter evening after not showing up to her mother's house for dinner. Verna was naked on her bed with a knife protruding from her chest, in addition to severe trauma to the head. Police believe that she may have even known her killer based on a reconstruction of the crime scene. It appears that she was quite literally knocked right out of her slippers upon answering the door for someone. No fingerprints were found at the scene. Semen was the only real evidence that they had against this phantom suspect. And while the MO certainly fit Wayne, we can almost be sure that it wasn't him as he was still away in the Navy and blood typing of the semen was not a match. Knocked right out of her slippers. Yeah. God. The murder of Verna Caval prompted Dusty Deschamps to hold the first grand jury ever to be called in Missoula County. Not necessarily a last resort, but Deschamps didn't have anything concrete to go on. There was a probable cause and enough evidence to file a murder charge in one of the cases, but he didn't have enough evidence that he would like to sustain his actions. Deschamps was under the impression that someone would know something and be prompted to say what they knew in the grand jury as it related to the McGinnis, Pound, and Caval murders. He would personally handle the questioning of all the witnesses, and while he viewed the Caval cases outside the scope of the murderer he sought, he was going to focus the public's attention on the Donna Pound's case. In June of 1976, the subpoenas were dished out. Wayne was subpoenaed to come in from California. Bill Van Cannigan also received a summons, and while annoyed, believed that he'd be safe from the scrutiny of Wayne as he was off in the Navy. We know Wayne was already summoned, so Bill was wrong. Yep. Costin says that on the appointed day, Bill came practically unglued. He was shown into a waiting room where Wayne and another man, Nick Nicholson, a friend of Wayne's, and considered absolutely dangerous <sighs> by Bill and Greg, who we mentioned in part one, he was known for getting drunk and shooting guns off. Sounds like the type of <laughs> person Wayne might actually latch onto as a friend. They were the only other people in the room when Bill showed up. Oh, no. So Bill was nervous. Obviously, he had tattled on Wayne. Wayne probably knew, or at least he's figuring something was up. Well, it's not going to be good. Yeah. So Bill's nervous, and Wayne wasn't helping. And throughout Bill's testimony, he was even somewhat reluctant to speak on the matter, even though he had readily divulged information previously. And it's not because he didn't want to, but because the whole time he was up on the stand, Wayne had his face glued to the window and the door facing inside the courtroom. 
How unnerving. Yeah, I can see that. I don't even recall having any windows into that kind of thing, but I can't remember being in a courtroom last. I just can't even imagine that. I know. Well, after Bill hops off, Wayne, he's actually questioned for hours. But Deschamps couldn't get anything from him. He was cool as a cucumber, as the expression goes. Actually, Wayne's father never showed up to the proceedings, (laughs) but Charlene certainly did. Hassan tells us of the gauntlet that Deschamps would go through every time he left the courtroom. Her fury over Wayne being singled out and accused for no reason. Her Wayne, oh my goodness. And her screams would echo off the courthouse walls. The jury spent roughly a month on the Pounds case. And believe it or not, Harvey Pounds became the prime focus. He was on the stand even longer than Wayne was. And he wasn't even phased by it either. By the end of October, after reviewing all the cases for this particular grand jury, so Pounds, McGinnis, Caval, and another unsolved murder of a man named Gil Wooten, the grand jury resulted in zero indictments based on lack of evidence against both Wayne and Harvey Pounds. Hey, we know the police were fishing. Oh, yeah. They were hoping for yeah. something. Yeah, and Deschamps, he wants to see something, say something. Thought somebody would say something, but I guess it just wasn't enough. Hey, I give him credit for trying. Mm-hmm. Better than nothing. Mm-hmm. All right, Harvey would go on to marry after moving back to Spokane, Washington, but after struggling with heart issues over the years, he would die at age 55. Mm-hmm. Wayne would return to his ship, the USS Robinson, and he spent two years on duty and had a spotless record. But by the time the grand jury hit, things began to take a downward spiral. On September 13, 1977, he was caught with marijuana. Later that month, just two days after his punishment was over for the weed, he was found with more. Oh, shocker. He also had some LSD, two butterfly knives, and some stolen Navy binoculars. Needless to say, on November 29, 1977, he was discharged by the Navy for reasons of misconduct. George would go on to say about his son, You know, his discharge was by mutual agreement. It was an honorable discharge. <laughs> if he decided he didn't like the Navy... And that's the way they operate these days. Oh, George. George was always making excuses for him. Mm-hmm. And he literally let him get away with murder. Mm-hmm. Oh, George. He really was just blind to what was happening around him and Wayne. Yeah. And it continued on that mm-hmm. way. Now, Wayne is 25. He's living at home. As we discussed previously, his mother had passed, whether by suicide or accident. I mean, it looked like suicide, but I don't we don't know. know. We don't know. Nobody knows. But it was still a traumatic event for Wayne. Our friend Captain Larry Weatherman had another body on his hands. Known as Beavertail Hill Girl from where the body was found along Interstate 90, it was determined she was roughly 15 years old at the time of her death. She was stabbed in the chest, thrown down an embankment where her body remained hidden from view for roughly two years. Larry Weatherman did his due diligence. He did. He had a sketch made of the girl with help from a reconstructionist specialist And he sent out twice a year to see if he could find a match. He sent information out. It wouldn't be until February 6, 1985, that this young girl was identified as Devona Nelson, who had disappeared from Seattle in July of 1978. What does a girl from Seattle have to do with Wayne? Good question, right? Mm -hmm. Well, Devona was a runaway. Her parents were going through a divorce when she was hauled off to Seattle to stay with her mother, Hazel Jones, and she decided to rebel. Not exactly unusual. Unfortunately, it would be the wrong, rash decision to make for a young girl dealing with trauma of divorce and moving across the country. Why the Northwest is such a hotbed of activity is beyond us. Mm -hmm. But Everybody. Yep. While we may never know what specifically happened to Devana, there were no suspects in the case for the longest time. Larry Weatherman would come to learn of a visit Wayne Nance made to Seattle in July of 1978, which coincided with the disappearance. Huh. Huh. Look at that. Huh. Law enforcement was not able to make the connection quickly due to the time span from disappearance to discovery and the distance from where the girl was last seen. They most definitely weren't thinking that this was a serial killer. Mm -hmm. But you have to think, Siobhan McGinnis and the manner of death, we don't want to be insensitive about the way the body was dumped, but it was similar in M.O. So Larry Weatherman would actually go on to think of Wayne again in the summer of 1980 when a bizarre incident occurred. 
Denise Tate would go out that night and leave her trailer door slightly ajar to cool it down for when she arrived back later. And when she came home, she didn't like what she found there. Ropes were tied to the four corners of her bedposts. She removed the ropes and threw them out in the trash because she was tired. Uh, She'd call the police in the morning. And when she eventually called the police, she spoke with Larry. And he obviously was disappointed to not have the physical evidence. But the way that Denise described how the ropes were tied was oddly familiar. It was exactly how they'd been tied to the bedpost in all three beds at the house of Donna Pounds when she was murdered. Oh, I'm sorry. So, Dory Schmidt moved to Missoula from a small town called Manhattan in Montana to be closer to her father, who was suffering from pancreatic cancer. She moved into a one-bedroom apartment by herself, and she and her husband were having marital problems, so she expected to be completely on her own for a while. For three days, she busied herself cleaning her new apartment and doing things on her own. However, the third night, her mother-in-law asked if she could take her estranged husband out of her hands just for one night. She complied, picking up her husband, who was drunk by the time she got there. That was one of the reasons they weren't together. Yeah. After he passed out and she had gone to sleep, she woke up around midnight to her husband, Bill, cussing, Son of a bitch, what are you doing in this apartment? Dory, obviously confused, sits up in bed thinking, uh, I live here? But she sees the silhouette of a man in the doorway with curly hair, the only detail she could make out. The man said he was in the wrong place and stumbled down the hallway. Dory didn't hear the door close, but she laid back down in bed. Turns out the intruder hadn't left. He had laid down on the couch. Bill got up to take care of the situation, booting the young guy out. And she would later learn it was... Wayne Nance. Surprise! And she was lucky that Bill was there that night. His presence was most likely a surprise to the intruder who expected her to be alone. Somebody was watching. I wonder if she had furniture delivered. Mm-hmm. Speaking of, Wayne, he gets a job at Collins Furniture on recommendation from a co-worker at the cabin in February of 1982. And Wayne came highly recommended. He was just such a nice guy, always willing to help out. He was just so polite. No one at Conlin's looked into Wayne's past, and they had no idea that he was a prime suspect in a brutal murder when he was 18. Mm -hmm. They also didn't seem to care that part of his employment history was a complete blank void. He didn't list the cabin amongst his former employer, which seems weird. And just left the years he attended the University of Montana as blank since he funked himself out after a stint in the Navy. And remember, this is a guy who's really academically gifted. Mm -hmm. Just didn't want to go through school. Probably bored him. Being brought into Conlins would open new avenues of opportunity for Wayne, but not in a good way. Nope. While this new job would move him ahead in socioeconomic status, it would also provide access to gain entry into people's homes. Wayne would go on to use Conlins as a base of operations to reach victims. He was one of those who didn't care about boundaries because he felt that he was too careful to get caught. And he never created a buffer zone for himself because no place was off limits. Through his deliveries at Conlins, Wayne had access to a lot of women. And let's face it, as we said before, all Wayne needed was opportunity. And he was going to have plenty of opportunity. Mm -hmm. Perfect job for him. Uh, Janet Wicker was another lucky lady. She came home one night, April of 1983, to an apartment she shared with her husband at the Cobblestone Apartments in Hellgate Canyon, just east of Missoula. As soon as she stepped inside, a masked man attacked, ordering her to give him money. He threatened to stab her if she didn't comply and forced her upstairs to the second floor. It seemed that the assailant didn't expect Janet's husband to be home so early as both heard the door open downstairs. The masked man was gone in a flash out across the second floor balcony and over the railing into the night. It was later discovered that most residents of Cobblestone could have been potential victims of Wayne. They had been all customers of Conlon's. And when all was said and done, hand-drawn blueprints of their apartments had marked potential escape routes were found in Wayne's room. While everyone thinks of Wayne at this, as this shy, polite, super nice guy, Costin finally starts to touch on his dark side sexual fantasies that he had of his co-workers at Conlin's. 
It feels that Costin is almost playing it coy up to this point regarding the inner workings of Wayne's mind as an adult. We know that he was anything but a well-behaved kid, but even children's fantasies don't compare to the sadistic sexual fantasies of an adult who has nothing but time to hone his craft. A bear hunter would actually go on to find the next body. It was Monday, September 9th, 1985. Shot twice in the back of the head, the killer presumably drove into the mountains to dispose of the evidence. She became case file Jane Doe 3UFMT, known as Chrissy Crystal Creek, due to the geographic location in which the body was found. The killer knew that she may not be discovered up there. Deputies led by Captain Larry Weatherman would climb to the spot to find pieces of a skeleton scattered about the headwaters of Crystal Creek. It was a young woman, smaller than Debbie Deer Creek, about five foot, maybe five foot two, as Costin describes, between 20 and 22 years old. She had a lot of dental work done, which could be of use to Captain Weatherman in terms of identifying her. She had been shot in the back of the head and again in the temple. Two 32 caliber slugs were also found at the scene. And upon further forensic examination, she was found to have light brown hair and may have been of partial Asian descent, right-handed, and definitely a smoker. The proximity of Debbie Deer Creek, Siobhan McGinnis, and Beavertail Hill Girl were unsettling to Captain Weatherman. All four unsolved homicides were in a 15-mile stretch east of Missoula. This had become someone's dumping ground. Yeah. We're going to go into some detail on Christy Crystal Creek in the second cast. I've dug up some very detailed information about her that may be new to many listeners and maybe will ring a bell with someone out there. We certainly hope so. We'll look to find out. It would be nice to identify her. Mm -hmm. Now, Wayne was content working at the warehouse in Collins, but he really loved making those furniture deliveries. Remember, this was his base of operations to find his next opportunistic kill. It seemed that everyone from Missoula had bought furniture from Collins. It was the perfect cover. And after deliveries, though, women said things like, I think someone might be watching my house at night. Just general feelings of being watched. Some other female customers called to complain that they were receiving obscene phone calls after the furniture deliveries. One woman would swear that it was the delivery man, Wayne, who was harassing her. She went as far as to enlist her phone number, but after she had taken another delivery from Conlins, it started up again. Only after she enlisted her phone number for a second time and refused to do further business with the store did the calls finally stop. Yet the woman at the store trusted him completely, and they had no trouble handing over their keys to him to make a delivery to their own home. Again, he was just a really, really nice guy. Of course he was. He's such a nice guy. He's such a nice guy. He remembers your birthday and things. <sighs> All right, so in November 1985, Wayne and fellow co-worker Mike Skillicon were driving south to make deliveries to a young couple in Hamilton. Mike and Teresa Shook had scraped enough money to the side in order to build a house of their dreams with their bare hands. Teresa would design the house, and Mike would build it. After three years, they were very close to completing the project when they decided to stop in at Collins to buy some new living room furniture. I would. Yeah, that's the place to get it, I guess. Yep. A new living room set would be delivered just in time for Thanksgiving. Wayne and Mike drove across the county line to make the delivery to where Teresa was home to receive it. Remember, they drove across the county line. A little foreshadowing? Mm -hmm. Sorry, that was very forceful <laughs> foreshadowing. <laughs> okay. You okay there? Yes. Okay. Uh, nothing would seem out of the ordinary with the delivery, but by the time Wayne and Mike returned, Wayne was in a foul mood. He told his co-worker, Sheila Claxton, that Mike Shook was an asshole, but didn't elaborate. First, Sheila knew the Shooks and knew that they were nice people. And second, what Sheila didn't know, and Mike wasn't around to overhear their conversation, Mike Shook wasn't even home. So why would he say he was an asshole? Hmm. So something must have triggered Wayne when he saw Teresa up at the house in the middle of nowhere with no one around. Mm -hmm. Twelve days before Christmas, the couple were at home, relaxing after dinner with one of their children, Matt. He was a second grader, and he was already asleep. The other two, Luke, who was barely old enough for kindergarten, and Megan, who was two and a half, were still up doing what young kids do, bopping around. Now, we're not sure what Nance was expecting when he showed up to the Shook house that night, but I doubt he expected what he found there. Mm -mm. There was a knock at the door. 
And who could that be? Before Mike and Teresa could do anything, Luke swung the door wide open, and a man with red curly hair, wire-rimmed glasses, stood in the doorway wild-eyed. He announced, I'm Conan the Barbarian, and then stated, I only want money. No one will get hurt. Blah, blah, blah. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. He had a gun and a knife at his hip. This was serious. Mm -hmm. Without warning, Teresa was immediately shot in the lower leg. Literally, when you guys read this book, we're seriously not telling you there was barely any escalation. He just came to the door. She shot almost right away. Yeah. Hi, I'm Conan. <laughs> Boom. Boom. Fuck e that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, really. <laughs> Even in the midst of her pain, she calmly directed her children behind her. The phone cuts through the thick tension and she answers it. Knowing that they're in danger, she remains stoic and calm. Her life not only depends on it, but that of her children. Her friend Mary is on the line. And while Mary knew something was up, she didn't press it as she figured, well, you know, motherhood might be taking its toll on this young mother of three. The lifeline to the outside was disconnected as Teresa hung up, and she didn't say a word about what was happening. <sighs> I know. She had, like, a brief conversation, but I'm sure she was probably just weighing that in her mind, trying to keep the kids safe. I know. And so after she hangs up the phone, we won't ever really know for sure what happened next, but there was definitely a struggle between Mike and Wayne. And unfortunately, Wayne prevailed, hitting Mike over the head and tying his hands and feet together. And even still ranting about only wanting money as he was tying Mike up. Again, literally without warning, as soon as he finishes tying Mike up, he pulls out his knife and stabs him in the chest. Oh. And Mike falls to his side, dying on the floor. The youngest children, Luke and Megan, had been watching and were unsure what was going on as their mother was then taken at gunpoint to the master bedroom and tied to the bed in the fashion that we've come to know very, very well. A four-pointed star with her wrists and ankles bound to the four posts. Luke was taken into the room where his brother Matt still lay asleep. Matt hadn't stirred this whole entire time. And then Wayne placed Megan in her crib, which was right next to Mike and Teresa's bed. And she bore witness to the unspeakable acts that Wayne committed against her mother. Oh, that poor little crib. You know. And around 10 p.m. that night, a neighbor would see headlights leaving the Shook driveway. However, two hours later, Wayne would return. But no one would see further headlights approaching the home or leaving. Police believe that he had spent a great deal of time at the house rifling through their personal space, taking a 12-inch plaster statue of an elk, a handmade hunting knife with a tanned leather sheath, and Mike's collection of silver dollars. The items that he took would be key pieces of evidence in identifying their killer. Once Wayne took what he wanted, with the shook children still inside, Luke watched from behind his bedroom door as Wayne lit a match and dropped it onto a makeshift pyre he created from barstools and magazines. Wayne didn't care that the children were still in their beds. He calmly left thinking that the fire he set would take care of everything. Oh. What Wayne couldn't know, since they built their own home, is that the house was built to be airtight. When he shut the door, he cut off the fire's air supply. However, the fumes emitting from the burning magazines were toxic. This is cyanide gas, and there was enough to kill everyone inside without a fire present. The children all slowly fell into unconsciousness, unable to get out of the house. The next morning... Greg Lakes, Mary's husband, the one who had called Teresa the night before, completely unaware of what was happening, along with his son Jesse, who was the same age as Luke, who's the four-year-old, rode out to Mike and Teresa's as Jesse was supposed to spend the day with them. When Greg went to knock on the door, no one answered, and he had a really weird feeling. Trust your, your gut. gut. <laughs> Mike's car was in the driveway, and that was not normal. Teresa hadn't answered the door. That's very unusual. Going around the back of the house, he knocked on the back door. There was no answer. Finding it unlocked, he opened it and stepped into a room filled with smoke. Advising his son to stay out, Greg ran into the house to find his friends. He found Mike and Teresa dead with all the kids unconscious. <sighs> calling nine, calling 911 for direction. He grabbed the kids and took them outside to get them out of the toxicity of the house. The kids were taken to Marcus Daly Hospital in Hamilton, and Greg would be on hand to answer questions. Greg had a unique advantage to the case. He was a reporter for one of the local papers, and he knew how investigations were run. Curiosity building, 
he finally received a call from Sheriff Dale Dye. That's a long time for a fire, he exclaimed. Yeah, but it's not for a double homicide, Dye replied. Megan, the youngest child and only daughter, almost died en route to the hospital as her lungs collapsed. Matt and Luke were only doing slightly better. Bob shook. Mike's father was called to the hospital. He and his other son, Steve, a local policeman, showed up together. Bob was told the most devastating news. His son and daughter-in-law were dead. The family reeling from the news was even more shattered when it was determined that it wasn't the fire that had killed Mike and Teresa, but that they'd been stabbed to death. To recap, the police found Mike lying on his side, dead where he had fallen. Teresa was found fully clothed with a pillow over her face, fatally stabbed in the chest on the bed they shared. Her bra and underwear had been cut off, and then she had been reclothed prior to the perpetrator leaving the scene. The autopsy would reveal that she had been raped and that the bullet left in her leg was of the 22 caliber variety. Does that ring any bells? Mm-hmm. Sounds familiar. Mm-hmm. The murderer had also tried to retrieve the bullet with a knife, but was unable to do so. So you remember the items that Wayne took? The Statue of the Elk, the Silver Dollars, and the Hunting Knife? Well, what a friggin' idiot. Mm-hmm. He's an idiot. He gave these as gifts to his father for Christmas. Yeah. I'm assuming they're trophies. They are. We know usually that trophies are taken as treasures or souvenirs to be hidden and taken out when a killer wants to relive the moment of the kill. However, knowing that his victims barely registered on his radar, did he even get a thrill out of knowing these were on full display in his home? And guess what? Fun fact. Mm-hmm. Wayne showed these off to people at work, saying, hey, everybody, look what I got for my dad. And what Wayne couldn't have known was the elk statue was one of a kind. It was a handmade piece given to the Shooks by Mike's sister-in-law, and therefore would be easily recognizable to the right people. Yeah, well, that'll be traced. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. Oh, man, this is just awful. So Sheriff Dale Dye decided to play certain aspects of the case very close to the chest. The Shook children were being protected around the clock as they felt the killer would be back to finish them off. They had obviously seen things. We doubt if Wayne even knew that they were still alive at this point. Dye had no suspects, but he did have a few things. Semen, a strand of red hair, a twenty two caliber bullet, and surprise, jurisdictional turmoil. Yeah. Details of the M.O. were never shared with the other police departments. Therefore, aspects of the crime scene, the rope, the stab wounds, the sadistic rape, never set off any alarm bells in nearby Missoula. However, even when they did catch wind of the case, well, the victims were a man and a woman, not a single female. Mm. It's called escalation. Get on board. Get on board. Get on board. Get on board. Dale Dye had a suspect in mind, and his name was Dave Davis. His names are tongue twisters. Dale Dye, Dave Davis. Oh, I'm telling you. Who names their kid Dave Davis? Like Ronald McDonald, Dave Davis? <laughs> David Davis? I, sorry. Dave Davis, who is a close friend of Teresa's, and according to Costin, he just happened to be practicing a new age religion at the wrong time. Mm-hmm. He went public a short while after the murders, saying that he was a suspect, but after two months of investigating, he had nothing to show for it. His hypothesis was that the killer knew the Shooks based on the sick nature that permeated the crime. Why Dye kept a lid on the case, he had shared some of the information. Alarm bells should have gone off in our friend Larry Weatherman's head. A warrant was issued to search for any type of rope at Davis's house, a signature we all know too well, but again, that wasn't made public. A small group on the force knew it was a 22 caliber bullet, a fact confidential to Dye's own department. They even brought in a psychic to help with the case. That psychic decreed three things. The suspect had an injury to the hip or leg. The suspect worked with some type of wood, wood furniture, or in a lumber mill. And the murders would not be solved until September 1986. Well, Wayne definitely worked with wood furniture. And guess what? Davis's wife, Mary Lee, she worked at Conlin's. Mm-hmm. However, by Christmas 1985, people were really starting to get a bad taste in their mouths when it, went, when it came to Wayne's. Something was really off, and it started to make everyone around him feel uneasy. And mind you, Christmas was only, he had killed the Shooks about 12 days before Christmas. Right. So he's probably feeling, I don't know, depending on the investigation, how things were going. 
he was definitely becoming more temperamental. Leads to the fact, again, was he escalating? He had moved on from girls to single women and finally to couples. Were more victims about to come? Mm-hmm. Paston would go on to explain his manager's attitude toward him. And I really do love this because it just shows the utter disdain that Costin has for Nance. We're sad about these crimes, but yeah. it really makes you hate Wayne, which is what you should be feeling and not the fact that he was always oh, a super nice guy. No. But he said that the manager felt she was walking on eggs every time she dealt with him and managing Wayne was especially hard when he was experiencing one of his prolonged bitch spells, yeah. which seemed to cycle up once a month. The woman used to joke about his menstrual moods when Wayne would be on edge or particularly and unmercifully demanding. Even though he was just a $4 an hour warehouse grunt acting as if he were Lord God Almighty. Now, yeah. side note, since we just did a whole series on Lizzie. Oh, yeah. The menstruation. If keep, if, I know men don't have menstruation. He but did. could it be the same thing? Mm-hmm. He has fleas. He has fleas. As it was called in the 19th he, century. He has fleas. fleas. Sheriff Dye had nothing to tie the murders to Davis, and suspicion of his involvement ultimately waned. And while there would be no normalcy for the Shook children, they would endure, and the murder of their parents would remain unsolved, but only for a little while. Now, Sheila, who we've mentioned before, was closer to Wayne than anyone else at Conlin's. And after rebuking his advances by being super direct with him, Mm -hmm. she became more of a friend. He opened up to her one night about his social awkwardness, and it kind of gave her an odd feeling. I think the reason I have such a hard time dealing with people and being in crowds is that I haven't been allowed to come back from all these past lives. I mean, I was held up. I wasn't allowed to have another life like everyone else, to learn all the lessons that everyone else has. That's Wayne. He went on to explain that he felt he did something bad in a past life, like kill. Was he really trying to open up to Sheila in a way? This is deep. Yeah, well, I'm pretty sure the unraveling began around the time of Robin. Uh, Would Wayne have killed Sheila if he had the chance? She recalls one night at a New Year's Eve party. Wayne had been invited as he had helped her move. So at roughly 5 a.m., Sheila and Wayne and one of Sheila's male friends were the only ones left, and they were playing Trivial Pursuit. And kind of getting a bad feeling at that point, she found the opportunity to tell her friend not to leave until after Wayne had left. After growing agitated, Wayne finally did leave. Rick Mace, a friend of Wayne's, teased Sheila a few days later, asking if the other guy was her boyfriend. Rick said, well, he was getting really pissed because the other guy wouldn't leave. Mm -hmm. I often wonder if he would kill the people at Conlin's. I mean, obviously he felt that maybe by them being nice to him, that there was some kind of advance. Still start to wonder if he would have killed more of them or if it was just more of these crushes that he had. I think if Sheila had caught on at all, given him any indication, flashed a real look of fear other than not letting the friend leave Mm -hmm. until after Wayne left? Maybe. Mm -hmm. Do I think he would have tried to come on to her again, even though she had made it very super clear that they were just going to be friends? It might have gone bad. Also, it would have been very obvious that Mm -hmm. Wayne was there with Sheila. Yeah. So he might have done it another night Mm -hmm. when Wayne was not obviously there with Sheila. So as winter turned into spring and spring to summer, it became clear that the sheriff's department was out of leads in terms of who done it for the Shook murders. And at Conlin's, everyone knew that Dave Davis was a suspect as his wife, Marilee, who worked there, had been interviewed and that Dave had left Montana. He probably wouldn't have left if he had been a legitimate suspect, right? They wouldn't have let him leave. I don't think so. Probably not. Yeah. So like many law enforcement investigations where crimes aren't solved in a timely manner, they become frustrating. Costing gives us the full details of the investigation that Dye ran, which makes even the reader frustrated due to his tunnel vision and lack of other viable leads that he could have made had he done other things differently. Like let the family into the house earlier or investigate other suspects or look elsewhere besides zeroing in on Dave Davis. Not to mention that Costin lets us in on the fact that Bob Shook learned about the items that Wayne stole, although he didn't realize they were stolen by the killer at the time. But due to the hardships both families faced and the lack of cooperation with law enforcement, he decided to let the matter drop and no one else knew that these items were gone. Oh, there's a golden opportunity that was botched. 
So on August 3rd, 1986, the Missoulian, a local paper, printed a story that quoted Sheriff Dye as saying, We have received results of an analysis of evidence submitted to the state crime lab. We have a very strong suspect in mind. So uh, this is just shy of a year later, mm-hmm. maybe nine months. So now there are hardly any details within the story, but that would most certainly get the gears grinding for Wayne. He wouldn't know that the investigation had literally fizzled and the police had nothing. Many profilers and psychologists would say that the intensifying stress to Wayne's psyche would come to a boiling point. Robert Hazelwood, a supervisory special agent at the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit, would later say that there's only one way to relieve that stress. There's no question that Wayne was paranoid about the Shook investigation. Serial offenders generally commit their crime as stress is building on them. The stress level reaches a peak, and that's when they make the kill. It's like a weight being lifted off their shoulders. That's what they, the killer, say. It's a cathartic experience. With all the uncertainty, fear, and stress strengthening the storm in Wayne's mind, Costin tells us this is not the time. Because Chris's birthday was only a week away. Now, we haven't spoken much about this, although it starts creeping its way through the book about the halfway point is Wayne's obsession and downfall, Chris Wells. Everyone knows about Wayne's crush on Chris, even Doug Wells, her husband, who says, do not encourage it. After one night when Chris asks Wayne to dance when some people from Collins were out at the cabin, he is obsessed. Mm-hmm. Wayne painted a picture of a wine glass of Chris with her legs spread out. This would most likely be considered sexual harassment in today's mm-hmm. world and wouldn't be tolerated. You think? No. <laughs> uh, I think maybe a former he husband might have punched his face he out. He would have been gone. Yeah. Wayne would have been out of job immediately if that went on today. Mm-hmm. There's just no question. He would show up at the cabin for the next three nights waiting for Chris to show with flowers kept on the bar just for her. Mm-hmm. All right. So he's obsessed. Both Doug and Chris Wells were transplants from Illinois, where the two went to high school together. Throughout their young adult lives, a series of moves and relocations, they would ultimately settle in Missoula, where they found to be very content, very happy. Doug started his own store called the Lock, Stock, and Barrel, utilizing his trade school education as a gunsmith. And Chris worked in sales, starting in home interiors, where she was content until something better came along. And that's when she started at Conlin's. And within two years, she was promoted to manager. So they're both doing really well. Mm-hmm. Very happy with what's going on. Now, Costin interjects into this description of this picturesque relationship of Chris and Doug by adding that Wayne was stalking Chris. He'd follow her with his camera. Yeah. yeah. Was he preparing her to be one of his victims? Maybe. It didn't seem like the objects of his affection, especially Chris, would be the one woman that he would murder. Don't think he would have murdered her unless she just overtly rejected his advances. Yeah. And he's tap dancing around and giving Mm -hmm. her flowers. Well, thank you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that kind of thing. He always seemed to take it out on a more vulnerable victim. Donna, middle-aged, slightly overweight. Siobhan, a Devona, essentially children. Robin, too trusting of the man who took her in. It was Chris's 33rd birthday, and she had every reason to be happy that day. That was until she received another gift from Wayne. Uh-huh. It was a ceramic turtle accompanied by a card that read, Since you don't seem to enjoy the jewelry that I gave you, maybe you'll appreciate a piece of artwork. I may be slow and cold-blooded, but only time will tell. Uh-huh. Determined not to let anyone else see Wayne's gift, she would look to throw it away at the first opportunity. She then tried to create a wide barrack around Wayne to keep it professional, but something more needed to be done. But what? During the month of August, whether it was the Shook investigation or Chris rejecting his advances, Costin tells us that Wayne was beginning to lose control. That mask was starting to slip. This is what I mean. He's definitely getting the, no, no, Wayne. No, 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 Wayne. That message is starting to increase from Chris. Costin gives us two examples of Wayne's inability to regulate his perceived normalcy. Mark Lyman was receiving furniture from Collins and recognized the two delivery men, Todd Zander and, of course, Wayne. 
He recalled Wayne as the fearsome upperclassman who carried a knife to school, who had jabbed another student with a hypodermic needle. Yeah, remember that? That's what you're remembered for. And he was also a suspect in the Donna Pound slang. But he literally thinks, that was then, this is now. What? Okay. After that delivery, Mark noticed that Wayne appeared to be casing his home, and it made him feel really uneasy. He said that Wayne's eyes were in scanning mode, uh, apparently taking in the details. And remember, he had those hand-drawn blueprints in his room? Mm-hmm. Yep. He's an artist, so he can copy. He knows scale. He's got the skills. Exactly. And remember Bill Van Kanigan, mm-hmm. the classmate uh, that testified against him in the grand jury and was afraid of him, yep. threatened him, heard his confession, quote-unquote? He remembered Wayne around this time as well. And he and a colleague were actually driving out near the Shook House, and his co-worker mentioned a fire. And that was a detail that Bill didn't know about. He just knew that they'd been murdered, but nothing about a fire, because that ultimately wasn't the cause of death, and nothing right. had been severely damaged by that. And his mind immediately went to Wayne, recalling when he set a fire to the Sentinel homecoming floats in effort to recreate a Viking burial at sea. He would never forget that time that Wayne had told him, it's been done in which he likened it as almost a confession to the murder of Donna Pounds. Not to mention that Bill was afraid for his own life after he Mm -hmm. had said something to the school principal and the police. So Bill, he was now a successful lawyer, had moved into a house in a classy neighborhood where he was known to throw some parties. People knew where Bill lived, and so did Wayne. Oh, that's not good. Bill would leave his doors open in the summer to cool the place down, but he had no reason to fear anyone or anything. Did he? Mm-hmm. A peculiar incident occurred in late August where someone had entered Bill's home uninvited in the middle of the night. Luckily, Bill heard the intruder and grabbed his nine iron as he kept his golf clubs in the bedroom. Figuring to get the upper hand, he waited until he gathered that the unknown assailant was on the other side of the door. He flung it open, shouting, Hey! Hey, you! The only thing he saw was the outline of a man running down the hall through the kitchen and out the door. Was it Wayne? Hmm. September 2nd, 1986 was the day to remember. Kassen even calls the chapter that. And if you recall, that third point of the psychic, the murder would be solved in September of 1986. Mm -hmm. This was the day when everyone noticed some extremely odd behaviors in Wayne. They knew he was always a little difficult, but this, this was different. At work, he was ornery even angry, the whole day. Sheila, normally on Wayne's good side and not afraid to ask him favors, found it difficult to do so. During an argument about a delivery, Sheila sensed a fragility under the bellowing, freakish rage and changed tactics, relenting to Wayne's mood. These mood swings would go on all day. He would rage in the warehouse and then become a self-pitying, unappreciated zealot. Then he would do something completely out of character. Doug Wells, Chris's husband, came for a visit. Wayne greeted him, even asked him if he wanted a cup of coffee. Everyone thought that he'd snapped, as they knew he hated Doug. So Mm -hmm. what was going on? Oh, this is a different Wayne. Yeah, something's not right here. Vern Wellen even noticed changes that were seemingly out of place for his friend and co-worker. Wayne, the company man who wouldn't ever perform errands of a personal nature on the clock, decided to stop at the bank to cash their checks and even stopped at Vern's trailer to look at some shrubs that he was hoping to replant. Vern was incredulous at the change in behavior and didn't know what to say. Wayne told Vern that afternoon, referring to another co-worker, Rick Mace, about getting credit for some of the work that he did at the warehouse. I'm just getting tired. This store has been my second home. Sometimes I care more about what goes on here than I do at home, and nobody cares. It doesn't make a difference. I'm sick and tired. I don't care anymore. I don't care. The unraveling was almost complete. Yeah, he's losing it. He's not able to to hold this in. It's it's spilling over. Mm -hmm. All right, someone else had a favor to ask. Joyce Halverson asked Wayne if he could help move a dresser that night. Oh, her timing is just... Just, it's just not wonderful. Good. It's not good. Yep. Her sons were out of town and her son-in-law and husband both had back trouble. And she really had no one else to help. And Wayne obliged. While at her home, he became distracted by pictures of her children saying, oh, I know your kids. I went to school with Jean and Heidi. Jeannie was a year older and Heidi a bit younger. 
Considering the large student population at Sentinel, Joyce was slightly taken aback that he was so familiar. Jeannie was actually there that night along with her husband, and she told her mother that Wayne made her uneasy. Upon moving the dresser, Wayne said, Oops, watch out for that drawer. I don't want any of those little panties to fall out. I mean, how strange and out of place. Joyce didn't even roll her eye because she was used to it and knew not to engage. Mm -hmm. But uh, (laughs) that sense must have been extremely palatable as not even her daughter and son-in-law reacted. Finally, at 9.30, without any notice, Wayne stood up and said he had to leave and just left. What a relief. Mm -hmm. A relief for Joyce, her family, but not for the couple that was going to spend the next few hours with Wayne in the latter hours of the evening and the early morning. Doug Wells. Yeah, we're going here. Doug Wells loved his rifle. A Savage, which was a lever-action Model 99G takedown from the 1920s. The rifle fired a particularly nasty bullet called the Savage 250-3000, named such as it was the first bullet to reach a velocity of 3,000 feet per second. Doug took care of his gun to ensure that it fired correctly when he would take it shooting. He even made his own bullets. This was a happy, but remember, he was also a gunsmith by trade. Right. The night of September 2nd, Doug and Chris Wells would go out shooting with another couple. After enjoying a night of shooting, barbecue, and a few beers, the Wells decided to call it quits, heading for home, arriving just shy of midnight. Something strange piqued Doug's interest. An orange and white Ford pickup was parked haphazardly on their side lawn, half in the street and half in the yard. Someone was slouched in the driver's seat and moved slightly when Doug shined a light in the cab of the car. Just sleeping one off, he thought. Mm Mm-hmm. After cleaning the Savage and setting it up right against the bench in the basement, he began thinking about the truck again. He told Chris that he was going to go outside and get the license plate number and phone it in. By the time he got back outside, the truck was gone. All right, sure. Yeah, no big deal. At least it was gone, not on their yard anymore. So Doug decides to bring the trash out to the street so that they could both sleep in the next day. But out of the corner of his eye, he sees something in the bushes off to the side of the house. It was the figure of a man. And the figure leaps out of the bushes, arms up immediately, saying, Wayne, from Conlins. Why the heck is he here? Yeah, you'd be like, what? Yeah, Wayne? Wayne, what's the matter? I saw something out here. And, you know, trying to rationalize why Wayne could be there at their home in the middle of the night, hiding in the bushes, Doug remembers the white Norwich truck. Maybe, maybe he saw something. And now, just as Doug was entering the living room through the garage with Wayne coming in behind him so that they could figure out what's uh, going on, whack on the back of the head, Wayne begins to beat him with a black billy club. Oh and although Doug's head was split open from the vicious attack, the two begin a desperate fight to gain the upper hand. Chris runs out of the bedroom as she hears thuds from downstairs and sees her husband fighting with a man. Nance takes the opportunity to draw his weapon, a Ruger. Get back, I've got a gun. It took Chris a few seconds to put two and two together. Then, what the hell? Wayne? Well, he's a bit unhinged, needless to say. Uh Uh-huh. I've done something really bad, and i got to get out of town. And I know Colin's got paid today, and I know you've probably got some money here. So I'm going to get some money, and I'm going to get out of town. Now, we know that Wayne's killed before, so do we honestly think that this is his real intention? No. We know what he did at the Shook home. Yeah. And now he's got the object of his desire, his obsession, so close at hand with her husband on the floor, dazed and bloody. All right. If you know anything about Dennis Rader, the BTK serial killer, he used this type of ruse as part of his MO to get people to be more compliant during his home invasions, more relaxed. I'm on the run. I just want money. If you cooperate, it'll be easier and I'll let you go and it'll be fine. It's just a way basically to get victims to submit to being tied up. And that's exactly what Wayne did next. He pulled some white clothesline from a bread sack he carried under his shirt and advised Chris to begin tying Doug up. Now, Wayne does keep up appearance of trying to get any money he can get his hands on. And we're sure that no matter what he's planning to do here, He is most likely going to try to get out of town to escape because he feels that the police are moving in on him regarding the Shook murders. Now, throughout this initial part of the ordeal, Doug and Chris try to placate Wayne, talking to him, trying to get him to calm down. 
but he is way too jazzed up. It is really hopeless trying to speak with him. Wayne decided it was time to separate Doug and Chris. So he's tying up Chris, he brings her to the bedroom. He keeps telling her that once he leaves, he'll call someone to come get them. He even goes as far as to write down numbers on a piece of paper that Chris gives to him. Chris was tied to the bed like a four-point star, each limb secured to a post, which is Mm -hmm. what he's been doing consistently. He stuffs a sock in her mouth and wrapped a pantyhose around her head. And next, he returns to Doug, shoving a sock in his mouth as well. So Wayne spends some time going back and forth between the bedroom and the living room, leaving Doug and Chris to wonder, what the heck's he going to do next? Why doesn't he just leave if he just wanted money and needed to get out of town? Nance decides to bring Doug down into the basement. Overtones of Donna? Mm-hmm. Donna Pounds? Yeah. You're right. He even helps Doug downstairs, as Doug is in rough shape from being hit repeatedly in the head with the billy club earlier. It's like, he's tying these people up, he's beating them up, but he's still still helping them out a little. He's mm-hmm. going gonna to call people after he leaves. Yeah. Gives them some hope. Wayne sets Doug down, and no more than a few seconds later, again, <laughs> more blows from the billy club. And after a few hits, Wayne pulls a gun on Doug, and this is when Doug realizes that they might actually be in real trouble. Nance ties Doug to the wooden post down in the basement, looping the clothesline around his neck, and then around his armpit so he's securely anchored to that post. He wasn't going anywhere in his state anyways, but he locked eyes on the rifle across the room. At this point, there's no way he can get to it, though. So Wayne leaves Doug downstairs, and he goes upstairs to Chris to check on her, make sure she's still tied up. She is, although he catches her trying to loosen the knot. He just gives her a blank stare, almost kind of like, hmm. Really? Why are you doing that? He adjusts, and then he leaves again, heading back down to the basement. So it's almost like he's just pacing back and forth, but up and down stairs, obviously. He doesn't know, and she doesn't remember in her panic state that Doug's handgun is in the nightstand right beside her. Mm Mm-hmm. The back and forth seemed to go on for a while. How long had it been? Neither Chris nor Doug knew. Doug felt he was running out of time. He was starting to lose consciousness. Doug's eyes shut, and that's when he felt it. Wayne had stabbed Doug in the chest just below his heart. He could hear the air escape out of his severed diaphragm. He goes limp as Wayne pulls the 8-inch blade out of him and wipes the blade clean on Doug's pant leg. The dead eyes of Wayne Nance look at him. No maniacal glee, no remorse. No, nothing. Just nothing. Wayne got up and headed out of the basement, no longer worried about Doug. He didn't even bother to shut the door. Yeah, as far as he's concerned, Doug's dead. Mm-hmm. This is done. Yeah, he's done. Pacing up and down the stairs, finished in. That's it. Done. Doug thought about Chris upstairs as he lay dying, and all of a sudden he felt this surge of adrenaline. He wasn't going to let anything happen to her. If he was going to die... He was going to kill Wayne in the process. Mm -hmm. He painfully managed to untie himself. He grabbed the rifle. He kicked on the wall a few times and waited for Wayne to come. Doug positions himself at the bottom of the stairs. Rifle aimed for where he knew Wayne's torso would be as he came through the door. Nance stopped in his tracks as he saw a dead man with a gun and began to reverse. And bullet blazing from the gun ripped through Wayne's side. And he heard Wayne fall to the floor. Oh, my God, I'm a dead man. Hearing the gunshot and fearing for the worst for Doug, Chris blacked out. I probably would, too. Yeah. Now, Doug, who's taken a savage beating to his head and his body, who's been stabbed. 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 Diaphragm severed. Mm -hmm. Manages his way up to the top of the stairs. With any strength he can muster, he begins to beat Wayne with the butt of the rifle as he's on all fours trying to make his way back to the bedroom where Chris is. Doug hits him so hard at one point, he breaks the rifle's wooden stock. Nance pleads for Doug to stop. (laughs) Stop, sure. Sure. Yeah. Wayne was forced into a corner of the bedroom. Chris came to with this spectacle before her, and she even launches herself into the fray, one hand still tied to the bed, punching Wayne. Wayne reaches for his gun. Doug hits him again. The shot goes wild into the ceiling. The second bullet from Nance's gun goes through Doug's leg. Poor Doug. Oh, oh God. Enters just above the knee and exits, <laughs> exits right below his crotch. Oh, God. Ugh. 
So on top of being beaten, stabbed, he's now been shot. Doug swings even harder. The lamp gets knocked over. The room goes black. Something hits the rifle. A third gunshot from Wayne erupts. Doug takes a moment to go for the handgun he knew was in the nightstand. He gets a hold of it and flips on the overhead light. The light goes on. Wayne isn't moving. He's slouched down in the corner, eyes rolled up into his head, wheezing with his legs quivering. He had somehow managed to shoot himself in the head just as one of the blows from Doug's rifle hit him just so. Knowing they were safe now, Doug laid down on the bed and told his wife to call 911. <sighs> I'm panting. <laughs> we're sure that the police walked into a scene. Blood in the living room. Blood in the bedroom with the bodies of two prone men lying about. Guns on the bed. It probably looked like one of those western shootouts, I'd imagine. Doug was carried outside first. And when the paramedics were bringing Wayne out, they actually dropped him. One even said, are you okay? <laughs> Oops. Someone even said just to leave him there. But, of course, being Oops. paramedics, they no, got they're him back in. They're professionals. They loaded him in next to Doug and brought them both to Missoula Community Hospital. Wayne dies. Good. Good riddance. The autopsy on Wayne would reveal that he had been fatally wounded by the bullet Doug shot at him from the basement. So, remember that gun. It was called a Savage. Mm -hmm. And that bullet was an extremely savage bullet. Remember yeah. 3,000 It was yep. miles per second or something like that? Mm-hmm. The slug severed the renal artery, hit the spleen, the pancreas, and the right lung and liver, clipping the ribs on its way in and out. He would have died within minutes anyway, according to the autopsy. Doug had meted out 60 bashes, cuts, scrapes, and abrasions at nearly one per second on Wayne. The bullet to the head traveled through his brain and lodged in the opposite side of the head. So the victims killed the serial killer. Mm -hmm. The tables had turned. That night, Mozilla was shaken by the news report of a couple who had survived a home invasion, but the attacker did not. Although hardly any details were given, the connection that was made between the couple and the intruder was Conlon's furniture. Bob shook father of Mike Shook, sees the news report about a couple being attacked at home. One of the details stuck with him. The perpetrator worked for Conlon's. Hmm. Gee, that's where the kids got the furniture. Frustrated by the thwarted efforts of the police to solve the murders of his son and daughter-in-law, Bob contacted Missoula County Sheriff's Department the day after the news story broke. Captain Weatherman was the man Bob spoke with. He said, if you go by this guy's house, meaning Nance, and look for a bungling elk and a custom-made bone-handling Kelgan hunting knife. And guess what? Huh. Weatherman thought he saw the knife that same morning on the first run through Nance's home. Good. Bob, go back. Yeah. Find it all. Yeah. Bob and his daughter and Lord Carlene were later called to identify the items. Carlene confirmed that the elk was the one she had made for Mike and Teresa. Remember, it was one of a kind. It was. And the knife was the one that Bob had given to Mike two Christmases before. When the police went to look for the delivery receipt to confirm that Wayne was the delivery man for the furniture job, they found that the receipt had disappeared. However, if Wayne had destroyed the evidence, he had failed to hide the fact that he had initialed for another delivery in the same area the same day. Both deliveries corroborated by his partner at the time. Sheriff Dye advised that they knew it was Wayne because he had the knife and the elk from the Shook home. The police began to make further connections to other murders in the area, and the public felt sick. A giant maw opened, swallowing the community's preconceptions that someone who might have been a friend, co-worker, joker, drinking buddy, son, or just the delivery man offloading a new stuffed chair for a den. The sheriff would learn that the twenty-two caliber bullet found in Teresa Shook's leg had been fired from the gun that belonged to George Nance, Wayne's father. On inspection of Wayne's room at 715 Minnesota Ave, the police found that Wayne had green rubber sheets on his bed. This was a new one for Captain Weatherman. He was the one who conducted the search of Wayne's room in 1974 during the Donna Pounds investigation. His father said he had a skin condition. Mm -hmm. Rubber sheets. 
Weatherman thought otherwise, using these as cleanup for whatever mm. rituals he might be involved in. Some photographs in Wayne's room were found of him with a dark-haired girl. You know those ones you get from a photo booth? Well, Nance's father identified the girl as Robin. Mm -hmm. She was a drifter. Weatherman immediately thought of the unidentified Debbie Deer Creek. A hair would be found in Nance's pickup that was an exact match uh -huh. for the hair found at the scene. Furthermore, just to be sure, he shipped her skull and the photo to Dr. Charney, the Colorado State University forensic physical anthropologist, to make a photographic superimposition comparison. So he was able to do a facial reconstruction based off the skull and compare it to the photo that was in his possession. It was a match. Mm -hmm. And you have to think about this from Costin. Most victims of a serial killer don't survive more than two minutes once they come under the killer's control. Doug and Chris were survivors. They spent more than an hour and a half with Nance through their horrid ordeal that almost resulted in Doug's death. They don't know what he was actually thinking during this time, but they do know what he did, what he said, and how they reacted. The FBI was very, very interested to hear everything that Doug and Chris had to say. Their story is now a part of the FBI's research into the role that victims play when they do become the unwitting victims of a serial killer. The Weltons actually make a trip four times a year to Quantico, Virginia, to speak with the FBI's Behavioral Science Unit, to talk about their experience and answer questions to help the BAU hone their profiling skills. We also wonder if Chris and Doug's inner monologues throughout the ordeal, as Costin had added in, may have helped them to survive. For example, when Wayne ties her up and begins to bring her to the bedroom, Chris thinks about how she's going to get blood out of her carpet. And Doug... For a guy who's done something really bad and needs to get out of town, he sure is dicking around a lot. It shows that they were thinking logically and thinking that they were going to survive. This must have helped Doug to keep going, even in the end, after he'd been stabbed in the chest, just to make sure that Chris was safe. Yeah. As he was unraveling, there's a belief that Wayne was carrying out his own expressions of his Viking fantasies through a rape-pillage syndrome, where he was challenging himself to conquer the protective male before the vanquishing of the female. Going back to FBI agent Hazelwood, he believes that Wayne didn't tie Chris up as tightly as he might have with Doug because it was playing into his fantasy that Chris might actually be in love with him. Additionally, the prime reason he's of such interest to us is because of the fact that he committed, to the best of our knowledge, all his crimes within a very small area and was still able to evade apprehension or identification. As we know from my profile on the Golden State Killer, the modus operandi is important, but also is the signature. The MO evolves over time, but the signature doesn't change. It stays the same. Wayne had ligatures and he was also into stabbing. Costin gives us a list. Siobhan McGinnis stabbed. Donna Pounds, tied up and shot. Devonna Nelson, stabbed. Verna Cavale, stabbed. Debbie Deer Creek, Robin, shot. Chrissy Crystal Creek, shot, most likely tied. Mike and Teresa Shook, both tied and stabbed. Teresa was shot. Doug and Chrissy Wells, both tied up. Doug was stabbed and shot. So we know that Wayne was at least responsible, or more or less responsible, for four murders, Donna Pounds, Robin, Mike, and Teresa Shook. He's still the prime suspect, rather the only suspect, mm -hmm. in the murders of Devonna Nelson and Chrissy Crystal Creek. Captain Larry Weatherman is certain that he's the one who attacked Janet Wicker in her apartment. Unfortunately, we cannot connect him to the horrific murders of Verna Cavale or Siobhan McGinnis, but many believe that Wayne is the culprit start off with easier victims, unfortunately animals and children, before graduating to their ultimate targets. Weatherman and Deschamps believe he's responsible for Siobhan's death. George, Wayne's father, still as reluctant as ever, conceded to the fact that Wayne attacked Doug and Chris, but refused to have the rest of the Missoula murders pinned on his son. Even, even with evidence? Come on, George. George. <laughs> George. Many people came out of the woodwork with their testimonials about Wayne and, and how they knew him. They were obviously upset as they found that they'd been working beside someone who turned out to be somebody else entirely. Marge Frame, she was one of the owners of the trailer park that they used to live in mm -hmm. and who knew Wayne as a little boy, especially the incident with the poor kittens. 
went on to say, it's unbelieving at first, and that's when you start to remember all these things. And then you hear other people say, I'm not surprised. He was like the kid on the bus. Once you thought about it hard enough, it just fit. An elated detective stated, it's like Christmas for us. The good guys won. Doug was a hero, and he became known throughout the state for his actions. The Missoula Reward Fund, which was set up in 1974 to solve the McGinnis murder, gave the Wellses $3,000, and more donations were made to the couple to assist with medical bills and other things like mortgage payments. Costin states that Doug had performed a public service and the community owed him. Doug was obviously a broken man due to his injuries. He had 22 stitches in his head from the beating he took from Wayne's handmade billy club. The bullet in his leg grazed his sciatic nerve, causing his foot to hang limp, and he had to wear a leg brace for months until his doctors were able to perform surgery that gave him the feeling back. The stab wound he suffered was the most serious. It resulted in Doug having to have open heart surgery to save his life. We'll leave you as Costin left us, a portrait of a life shattered by the intrusion of Wayne Nance. Unlike many others whom he murdered without remorse, Doug and Chris survived. They turned the tables. However, their conversations would always turn to him. Nightmare images of Wayne appear behind their closed eyes. Once peaceful nights spent outside are no longer enjoyed, the dark is now a sinister place where men hide behind bushes. Guns are placed strategically around the house waiting for the next invasion, and life would never be the same. The moral of the story, John Costin writes, One young deputy would learn that Missoula's own serial killer, a native son who killed and killed again with immunity. He was a local boy who attended local schools. He was a remarkable worker and a talented artist. He was incredibly sweet to the women who knew him more attentive to their emotional needs than even their boyfriends. He was always there with a gift or flowers or just a card. He never forgot birthdays. He was the virtual boy next door. Beware the boy next door that's just a little off. Trust your gut. And that concludes part two of our three-part series on To Kill and Kill Again by John Costin. Join us next time for part three, our second cast, where we will be discussing more information about Chrissy Crystal Creek and Debbie Deer Creek, also known as Robin, in addition to the Satanic Panic and how Wayne Nance fits into all of it. If you haven't read the book, that's okay, but you're going to want to sit in as we talk about all the weird shit that he was into and why the people of Missoula thought they were being besieged by a Satanic cult. And if you want to get a head start again on our next book, we are going to be reading about the infamous chameleon, the lady killer himself, Ted Bundy, and the Phantom Prince, My Life with Ted Bundy by Elizabeth Kendall. Again, a different story about Ted, one told through Liz's eyes. Hey, thank you for listening. We're happy that you're here. Please reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. Shoot us an email at jillandtara at murdershelfbookclub.com. We'd be happy to hear from you and incorporate your thoughts on our readings into the show. Follow us or subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or Podbean. Let our episodes pop right into your feed. And if you can, please leave us a five-star review. Every little thing you do helps us to keep getting better. Until next time, Murder Bookies, happy reading. Bye-bye now. Written and produced by Jill, all rights reserved.